Let's just uh, bow for a word of prayer together, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Spirit of God who not only was the author ultimately of Scripture, but also is the one who interprets and illumines our minds to, to grasp it and to understand it. Help us to gain maximum benefit from it tonight because we've got hearts that are prepared and, and ready to listen to what you want to say to us. We just praise you, Lord, for what we know you're going to do, what you've done already as we've talked about this matter of polytheism. Grant to us that we'll just have a special time in exploring your word tonight, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're talking about some of the things that are really carryovers in terms of habit from our old life, things that we do not necessarily overtly decide we're going to do in rebellion against God, but things that are that so characterized our old life that we just quite naturally fall into them even after we become believers in Christ. There are some things in the life that we live that are so obviously foreign to the Christian world that some of these things just uh, seem very uncomfortable to us. But there are other things that are so common that even though they're wrong, even though Scripture has things to say about them, uh, there is the there, there is a, a commonness about them, and people, uh, everybody seems to be doing it, that sort of an attitude. And the result is that we very quickly and very easily fall into those things because we're accustomed to doing them as unbelievers. We find that believers are accustomed to doing them, and even though occasionally we have a twinge of conviction about it, nevertheless, we find ourselves often uh, just doing those things. The last couple of weeks, we have been talking about this matter of polytheism. Again, just by way of review, let me say that before we were believers in Jesus Christ, virtually all of us were polytheists. That is, we attached value and worth and worshipped things other than God. We wouldn't probably term it polytheism, um, nor would we want to call it idolatry, but that's what it was. Because any idolatry is any time you attach worth to something other than God. Anytime God has a rival, uh, there is, that, is, that becomes idolatry. And idolatry is far more common among the unbelievers than they would like to admit. But even more so, it's, it's more common among believers than they would like to admit. Very few believers would like someone to accuse them of being an idolater. They would be quick to come to their defense and say... Uh, well, certainly I, I don't worship other gods. I worship only the true and living God. I, I gave up idolatrous practices long ago. But the truth is, what, to what do you attach value and worth? That really determines what you worship. If you attach value and worth to money or to things, material things, or even to other people, and put those things in that sense in a category where they occupy your time and your attention, your love, your affection, then you're guilty of setting your affection on things on earth, not on things in, the, in heaven. And God wants us to focus our attention upon the things that really count and the things that really matter. And there's a great drainage of, of power from the life of the believer who allows other things to be any more than what they are, things. They're just things. And yet there's a, there's a strange magnetism to things. I was uh, uh, looking this morning before men's class, because we were talking about some of these things uh, anyway uh, this morning, and uh, I, I couldn't find this passage. Uh, I knew what it was like, but I, I just didn't have time to search it out. And... Uh, the major reason that I wanted, I just wanted to mention it um, this morning, but I wanted to bring it out tonight as well, so I took a little time and found it. It actually is found in Psalm 135. The reason I couldn't find it was because I thought it was in Isaiah, and uh, I was uh, shortcutting my way, method of finding it. But if you want to just turn for a moment uh, to uh, Psalm 135, uh, you'll 
you'll discover a, a, a very interesting little sequence here in regard to idolatry. Psalm 135, beginning to read at verse 15, the idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Now watch the description here. They have mouths, they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Now, you would agree that's a pretty good description of idols as we think of them classically. That is, the little god carved in the shape of an animal or in the shape of a man or half man, half animal. Uh, the kind of thing you find on a pagan god shelf. You've seen these little Buddhas for sale at, a, at cost plus or something like that. Uh, those are what we generally think of when we think of idols. But keep in mind that an idol is anything that displaces God at all in your, your affections. And uh, they are the things that men make. They're material things. Things that you touch and feel and yet they're dumb. There, there's nothing really of any real value, particularly eternal value, that these things can, can gain for you. But the next verse is the verse that really clinches it. Listen to this. Those who make them will be like them. Now remember the description. What's the description? They're dumb. They're stupid. They, they can't talk, even though they have lips. They can't hear, even though they have ears. They become, they become uh, just what they are, a chunk of gold or a chunk of silver. There's no real value. But those that make these idols become like them. And then look at the next phrase. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Everyone who trusts in them. If you put your trust in uncertain riches... If you put your trust in material things, there is a metamorphic change that takes place. What, what are you to be like? You're to be like God, like Jesus Christ. You're to, you're to be the reproduction of, of the character of God in your life. You're to be holy as he is holy. You're to be righteous as he is righteous. That is the thing that happens when you get acquainted with God. When you look into his face, the scripture tells us that we are changed from glory step to glory step, more and more like him. You focus your affection, your attention upon God and you become like him. But you focus your attention upon material things, dumb, stupid, material things. And what happens? You become like them. Is that really what you want? Do you want your face to look like a dollar sign? Or do you want that face to shine with the glory of God himself? See, there's the, there's the trade-off. And you have to really decide which you want. Because sure as the world, you're going to be like the one that you serve. The one that you love. Years ago, I came across a little poem that, in fact, it was when I was still a child that I heard it for the first time clear back in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, one of my growing up years. It it's taken on different meanings during the year as the Lord is years as the Lord has dealt with me about different things in my life. And uh, I remembered it as a boy, just as a as a, a cute little poem. But as I've grown older I've seen more and more that the the author of the poem had tremendous insight into where we're, where we're headed as Christians. And uh, it really is meant to be read around Christmas time, but it, it still gets the point across right now and certainly gets the uh, point through that I want to get through tonight. It says, Once I bought my boy an engine that would circle round and round, for I knew he'd be so happy when his electric train he found. Like a boy myself, I set it going neath the Christmas tree all my dignity forgotten as I watched in childish glee. Then it stopped. I tried to mend it. Turned it here and punched it there. By my knowledge of mechanics, found no trouble anywhere. 
I was disappointed sorely, as I knew the boy would be. Then I spied a glittering something that had fallen from the tree. Surely that wee bit of tinsel on the rail no harm had done. But I brushed it off, and presto, how that train began to run. But my smile of joy soon faded as I slowly turned the key. Through that incident of playtime, what a lesson came to me. Oh, how many lives are useless, standing still or sliding back. Something foreign cuts the current, maybe tinsel on the track. Just a bit of something shiny, something harmless in its place, but it makes all effort fruitless. There's no power for the race. Track is smooth. Train is ready. Machinery has no lack. You alone can find the trouble. Get the tinsel off the track. Then again the train goes speeding on the round the master hand laid before you on the mission that his love and wisdom planned. Just a little tinsel on the track. But I, I, I'm, so, I, I'm so disturbed in these days, friends. I, I really have to confess it. I, I guess it's, it's more than coincidence that we happen to be studying principles of finance on Wednesday morning in Proverbs 11, and we happen to hit on polytheism three weeks in a row here on Wednesday night, and so on. I, I, I'm convinced that we, we constantly are at a crossroads in this materialistic world in which we live, where there is the danger of a lapse of value system, the pressure is enormous. The, the, the pressure to go for it, to go for the material things, to put other things first, to give them more than their rightful place, is, is so great. And we all can get caught up in it so very, very easily. And we have to learn, we have to realize that, you know, if we have a car... And Lord bless you if you have a car. I hope you have a good one that runs well. So it gets you from here to there. Gets you to church and back at least, you know. I mean, we need that. That's something, it's a material thing. But the minute we start looking at it as something other than what it is, it becomes a God. When we start seeing it as, as, as a prized possession, something you spend undue amount of attention upon, undue amount of time upon, and it really doesn't matter what brand it is or even how much money you paid for it. If it does the job, it's, it's, it's fine. But the minute you get attached to it, that's where you're at the point of jeopardy, the point of danger. When you find that, that you, you, you have a job that is secure and, and, and uh, good income and good uh, fringe benefits and, and good retirement plan and all of that, the minute you start looking at that as your security instead of God, it becomes an idol. And it throws you off. It becomes tinsel on the track. And there have been too, so many people when material things begin to, to get a foothold in their life. You know, the amazing thing is that, that Scripture is very complimentary. I shared this with the men this morning. Scripture has a lot to say about the wrong use of riches. But the Scripture also has a great many commendations for people that are rich. And, and when you have, remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, he said that God has given you richly all things to enjoy. He's not opposed to your enjoying the good things he's provided. He just doesn't want you to fall in love with them. And he doesn't want you to count on them tomorrow. He doesn't want you to make a God out of them. He wants you to keep a correct focus. In order to do that, in that passage in 1 Timothy 6, he, he says that, that you've got to be sensitive to God in terms of giving and caring for others and so on. But he also says that you don't put your hope in uncertain riches. So you just can't count on riches tomorrow. And the minute you say, you know, I don't know what I'd do if I lost my job. The minute you think that, that you're, you're focusing upon the job, and in that case, 
what might happen rather than what actually happens. And, and you, you change a proper attitude where, where a job is just a utility so that you can be a better steward for God and you're, you use the job as an opportunity to minister in that way to your employer and to your fellow employees and so on and you see all of that fitting together for the glory of God, that's a good thing. But the minute you start thinking that that's where your security lies, that that's where the real important thing is, then you've got tinsel on the track and you're thrown off in a hurry. So keep your eyes on that. Keep it in mind. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 and see if we can make a little progress tonight. Matthew chapter 6. We talked about not laying up treasure in heaven because of the insecurity of riches. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Then we talked about this matter of the single eye. The idea of of having a, an eye that is single, an eye that is generous is really the word. It's a generous eye. It's, a eye, it's an eye that, that uh, uh, has a generosity that comes from a single purpose. It hangs loose as far as things are concerned because its focus is upon God. The person with the single eye is the person who knows what he's doing and where he's going, a person who's, who's really secure in his eternal perspective. And because of that, he can afford to be generous. So the idea of generosity is, is built into that little word. And uh, haplus is the word, and it, it, it is translated liberal in uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, it's translated uh, generosity in most of the uh, modern translations in passages like 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 6, 5, and Romans chapter 12, and so on. Uh, it, it's that which, which has generosity built right into it. But the reason he's generous is because he's got an eye fixed upon God's glory, and as a result, he hangs lo- loose as far as the things, the material things of life is concerned. Christ is intimating when he says that if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, that is Paneris. If your eye is evil, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When he says that, he is, he is intimating that when one has a generous focus on his life, a generous outlook on, his li- on life, he's going to be filled with light. But the opposite of that is a corrupt outlook. Because he set his heart on riches and wealth and the treasure of this earth, his life is going to be one that is filled with darkness. That's just another way of saying he's got tinsel on his track. No power. His life is full of darkness. Now those are stern words. But right after he has talked about treasure and then about this matter of light and darkness, this matter of the evil eye and the good eye, he then gives us something concerning an attitude toward service. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, do you ever face this where, where you, there's a tremendous conflict that is set up between the materialistic world in which we live and a God who is sovereign over our lives. You start thinking of the demands that the materialistic world makes upon us that keep us from doing what God wants us to do. All because of the materialism. You know that jobs can keep you from from church. God, uh, jobs can keep you from from uh, uh, witnessing, uh, can keep you from, uh, from being with your family when you should be. Now, mind you, Scripture also has a work ethic. We're not talking about a man just quitting his job and saying, well, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to do everything God wants me to. You have to be led of God to do that because Scripture is very clear. If you don't work, you won't eat. That's God's welfare system. You work and you eat. If you won't work, you don't eat. That's a way to encourage a person in a hurry to at least make an effort to work. There are a lot of people that if they were made to work, 
in order to collect their welfare check, which is something that I think would be a highly commendable program, if they were made to do that, then they would say, well, if I've got to do that, I'll just go out and get another job. It'd be amazing how quick they'd get their job because they'd rather work for money than food stamps if they have to work anyway, see? But God says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So it's not a matter of encouraging. You've got to always keep the balance of Scripture here. Not a matter of encouraging people to go out and quit their jobs so they can spend more time with their family or so they can spend more time at church. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about the undue demands that jobs make upon people. We had a fellow in our church a number of years ago, and he came on Sunday morning, and, and um, we got acquainted with him over a period of time. And one night, he told me, he said, you know, I kind of think I made a mistake a few years ago. He said, uh, I changed jobs from the job that I had to a job where I'm selling insurance. And I was told by the man who hired me, he said, you have to recognize from this point on that you are going to have to sell your soul to the company. There is nothing that comes ahead of the company. Your family doesn't come ahead of the company. Your golf game doesn't come ahead of the company. Nothing, absolutely nothing. We demand absolute total allegiance on the part of all of our agents. And if you do that, then we can guarantee that after whatever period of time, you can retire at a very healthy sum and do all of the things you've always wanted to do. And this man said, for 10 years, I have been a total slave to this company. And he says, I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time for my family. And he had lost his kids at this time. I don't have time to come to church. I make it on Sunday morning whenever I can, but that's it. My spiritual life is withered and I don't know quite what to do about it. That's a terrible demand for a job to make on a person. And yet, that is not uncommon. It may not be as overt. Not every boss may say that, but there are a lot of bosses thinking it. They're making those demands so that a person cannot even contemplate being the person that God wants him to be. And the fact is, you can't serve two masters. You've got to decide who your master is going to be. If God is going to be your master, then you've got to be a bond slave to him. You've got to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's got to be all in surrender and all out service for God. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 called for the surrender of one's body, soul, and spirit. And God must be the single object of worship with all else given a lesser value or it's the equivalent of hating God. God has painted a black and white picture. I know there's some people that really resent some of the black and white things that they find in Scripture. They don't like this idea that if you love the world, then you hate God. They don't like that. But that's exactly what God says. Not only does he say it in the book of James, but he says it also in the uh, book of First um, John, First John 3. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you hear that? The love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world, if you're attached to the world with that kind of affection. When there were some men that came to the Lord Jesus and said, well, we want to follow you, Lord. And the Lord told one of them, he said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has not where to lay his head. That fellow didn't come back for a second try he didn't like the, the terms of the contract and the man says Lord I want to follow you but let me first me first <laughs> symbolic isn't it let me first go say goodbye to my family 
Well, what's wrong with that? Say goodbye? Well, you don't understand the Jewish goodbye parties. They took months. Christ didn't have months. He wanted to go back and go through the whole celebration. Another man said, I want to follow you, Lord, but let me first go bury my father. Problem with that was the father wasn't dead yet. And what the, what the person wanted to do was he wanted to go back and wait until he got his inheritance and then he would follow the Lord. It's not too strange that right after that the Lord Jesus said, the, white, the field is whitened unto harvest, but the labors are few. It's no wonder the labors are few when you've got people making excuses like that. But they all had the problem of not understanding who their Lord is. Now, who's your Lord? Does he have Lord lordship over every phase of your life? Remember a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, we were talking about the fact that Christ said, you must hate your father and mother. You must hate your brother and sister. You must hate your wife and children. People have a hard time with that because they, they can't understand what, what's Christ talking about telling people to hate people. What he's saying is that when you, when you face the idea of your love for him, if you give him all of your heart, all that you have left is what he gives you back. That from the standpoint of, of, of your giving up, you give up all affection for anything but him. Then what he does is he gives his affection back to you so that rather than loving people with your love, you don't have any of that left, you gave it all to God, you now love them with God's love, which is a better kind of love anyway. So you give yourself up totally to God, and God doesn't leave you hanging. He doesn't, he doesn't make you have, a, have an attitude of hostility against your wife, against your children. In fact, he does quite the opposite. And he turns it right around and gives you a heart of love, which now is transferred from him to you, and then goes out to others. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. God, God has, a, has a good thing going. You know, people a lot of times see the, see the treasure over here and they, they desire that. Or they see people over here and, and desire them and they put their focus here. And when that happens, it brings primarily frustration. People just can't handle this direct line. Because their affections get all fouled up. They don't have anything, uh, any way of, of really focusing attention upon what's really important that way. But what God does is God says, you focus your attention here. You give me all of your heart. You serve me completely and entirely. You give me my full sway. And what I'll do in turn is I will give back to you those things that are best for you. And I'll give you an ability to appreciate them. You know, people that are really oriented to the word of God, people that are really macho on, on doctrine, those individuals enjoy the things of life far more than the guy that goes this way. He thinks he's having a great time, but there's so many times in his life when he's miserable. An example of that was in Ecclesiastes, um, where, where Solomon had several things. You know, Solomon was quite a guy. He, he uh, remember you ladies that were in ladies class last year, we studied Ecclesiastes, and, and he got so uh, to the place that he had to go to Neiman Marcus and get apes and peacocks because, you know, he had to have something new. And uh, so, you know, he, he, he had to import apes and, and peacocks. You ever go to Neiman Marcus and look at some of the junk they have in there? Down in Dallas, Texas, before they started putting stores everywhere, they had a gold Cadillac for sale for, you know, a million dollars or something like that. Gold-plated Cadillac. And uh, I guess they sold them now and then. I don't know. Some crazy people would want something like that. I could think of better uses for gold than that. I mean, you could be better off with fillings in your teeth than on your Cadillac. But nevertheless... They, they've got all of these things that you never dreamed of that you don't need, you see? And rich people go in there 
and they and they they buy these things. Well, Solomon was like that. I mean, he was he was desperate. There was a movie star in Newport Beach. The name slips me right now, but someone who who worked in the building uh, where she had a penthouse said that every month she moves out for three days. Interior decorators come in and redecorate the place at the cost of thousands and thousands of dollars. Every month, a total, they, they take out all the furniture, start over from scratch, everything new, and uh, her house is immaculate. You can imagine, how would you like that, gals? Not just a house cleaner to come in, but someone come in and redecorate every month. See? Well, Solomon was like that. I mean, he was, that's the kind of lifestyle he was living. He was wealthy, and he, he hardly knew what to do with riches, and his whole focus was wrong. And guess what? He sits all these people down at this banquet table and they eat pheasant under glass and he can't eat it because he's got ulcers. And that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was that night he went to bed and he couldn't sleep. Now he's the guy with all the dough, right? And he couldn't sleep. And he goes for a walk. And you know what he hears? He hears the snoring of the workers people working for him they're sleeping and he's the rich guy and he can't sleep and he says it's not fair it's vanity of vanities all is vanity I'm the guy that should be able to sleep I'm the guy that should be able to eat I'm the guy with the money and these poor people only have the pittance that I pay them and they can eat and they can sleep something's wrong with this value system well, I'll tell you something's wrong with the value system because the scripture says that the Lord can do things for you that your job will never do. For instance, he says that when you're trusting him, he will make you to lie down in peace and safety. It says that he will give his beloved sleep. Not only that, but he feeds the hungry soul and fills the longing soul with goodness. You see, a lot of people can feed their face, but they can't feed their soul. They can't satisfy their intellect. They can't satisfy their emotions. They can't satisfy the other parts of their, of their life. They can't satisfy that. But he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. See? But you've got to get... Your focus here. You delight yourself in the Lord. And then He takes care of all of the rest. He takes care of all of the details of your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then He takes care of the rest. You know, I could, I could go on and on. I, I've, got, I've got scripture tucked away in the flyleaf of my memory that, that uh, talk about the fact that the person who delights himself in God can have a, can have a, a, a far better enjoyment of, in terms of sex life. He can have a far better enjoyment in terms of the, of the, the use of material things. He can have a far, uh, far more enjoyment in, uh, in his occupation. Scripture is full of this. And constantly, Scripture is saying, it's a, it's a very basic message that you find floating all the way through Scripture. And it's simply this. Always focus your attention upon God. Always seek Him. He's not going to let you down. So you can't serve two masters. You've got to decide which way you're going. And the only way that you can have the best of both worlds is to serve this master. Because I'll tell you something, it doesn't work the other way. When you go for material things, when you chase after people, when young men chase for wives, when, when, young, uh, when, when young people ch chase for the best job and, and for the best career and the best education, and that's your focus, it doesn't lead you to God. It leads to despair. But when you seek God, Ultimately, it leads to that which he's promised, which is the full satisfaction of the individual. Now, there must be such an intense loyalty to Jesus Christ then that nothing, including the preservation of our own lives, will deter us from following him. Luke 14, 26 says, If any man comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. We have to follow him totally and completely. And if we don't, 
and it throws the whole thing out of whack and we never accomplish the things that he wants us to have. Psalm 73, verse 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And who's there on earth besides thee? Huh. No one. He should be the object of our affection, the object of our, of our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our trust, everything. Otherwise, we do what the nation of Israel did. It says in 2 Kings 17.33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods. Now, in reference to God's supply, that is the channel coming back here. There is a lot of misunderstanding. I want you to look with me at verse 25, Matthew 6, and understand that a believer has a supply from above. James wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of all lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift, every perfect gift, it comes from above. You, you don't get it on the earthly scene. You get it from above, and God richly rewards. But in verse 25, it starts talking about the attitude towards supply. And we need to understand where our supply comes from. It's common for man to get his eyes off the Lord whenever he begins to think that he created his own supply. That what he has, he got. The nation of Israel was warned in the book of Deuteronomy that when you have houses, which you didn't build, and when you have lands, which you didn't plow, when you have crops that you didn't reap, when all of these things come to you, then beware, lest you forget the Lord your God and say, My hand, has brought me this wealth. Sure as the world, if you begin to think that you have done something, you've heard me say many times, I have to repeat it because it fits here, but I uh, hope it's not redundant for some of you. But when somebody says that he's a self-made man and that everything he has he got himself, he didn't need man's help, he didn't need God's help, I'm always tempted to say to such an individual, well, then stop breathing God's air and see how long you last. Because you see, God supplies you the air, He supplies you strength, He supplies you health. He's so merciful even to the wicked. He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There's so many things man cannot control, so many things man can't do. For him to say, my hand has gotten me this wealth is stupid. It came from the hand of God. But nevertheless, man has a hard time with that. And so he often is unwilling to confess that really it was from God's hand. Well now, what happens then is that a man begins to focus upon the things that he needs, the things that he wants, and forgets God. There's an old, old poem that says, says the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly Father such as cares for you and me. Well, now that's based on this text of Scripture, that little poem, because it says for this reason, first of all, the, talking about the forgetfulness of man, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious. There's that word, merominao, a word that we're going to consider in a study we're going to do next week in the, this continuing series. For this reason I say unto you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body. What you shall put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. What really is life anyway? Man forgets what's important. One of the major things that man forgets, and I, I wish that I had a creative enough mind that I could communicate this so that you'd never forget it, but we all forget it, so I guess... It's, it's one of those things you just have to repeat in order to impress upon the mind. But that is that if you think of eternity as an endless circle, it's from olam to olam, from vanishing point to vanishing point. So it's really not a circle. Uh, there's no circle to it. It has no beginning. It has no ending. It's the vastness of God and his faithfulness. <clears throat> but if you think of it in terms of a, of a circle, a circle that is infinite in size, all right? Time is right there. And that's too big. We magnetize it just so that you can see it. It should be 
with a microscopic uh, um, glass of some kind so that you can pick up how what a pittance time is. Now, you think time's a long time. You know, if you live to be 90, you've lived 90 years, and 90 years is a, is a heap of time as long as you're locked into time. But a day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. I mean, the Lord's not locked into time. He's forever. Can you imagine what 90 years seems like to him? Now, Scripture tells us to so number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, but the Psalm 90 where it says that, it focuses our attention upon eternal things. We should live in this period of time knowing that it affects all that that goes for eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you've never had anybody illustrate eternity for you, let me just say this, that someone tried to illustrate it with a small child, and here's how they did it. They said, let's imagine that you take the tallest mountain on earth and you have a little bird who comes once a year to that mountain and takes one grain of sand from that mountain and deposits it elsewhere. When the mountain has been moved entirely, then eternity has just begun. Can you conceive of that? Well, you can, your mind can grasp the one grain of sand. It might even be able to grasp the mountain, but when you start talking about the years it would take to move that mountain grain of sand by grain of sand, you've already, you're already out of it. But that's only the beginning of eternity. And will you get it, folks? That's where the action is. So Paul could say, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be hereafter. You've got to determine now whether you're going to have glory there or gloom. And you develop in time the capacity that you will have to appreciate the countless ages of eternity. And the tragedy is so many people are worried about being paupers here when they ought to be worrying about being paupers there. You can be a pauper here for 90 years. And it's a struggle and it's tough. And I, I, I hope none of you are. I hope that you have at least a few nickels to rub against each other and that you're able to, you're able to make it. But, but in comparison... There is no comparison. There's no way that we could conceive of how, what a pittance earth is going to seem when we get into eternity. And God's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes. Somehow or another, He's going to deal with the regrets that will be found at the judgment seat of Christ. But I want to tell you right now, if you are not consciously living for eternity today, then my friend, you're, you're wasting your time and you don't have very much of it. And eternity is a long, 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 long time. There are a number of ways of illustrating it, and I, I don't think any of them are very good. Some may be better than others. Some have likened it, some theologians have likened it to the idea of a child who in a period of time develops only a limited mental capacity. That is, he never really grows. Now we, when we see a retarded child, we, we think of it as being a tragedy, and it, it really is a tragedy for the parents. Perhaps not as much a tragedy for the child as we might think, because the child lives in his limited world somewhat, and I think that children like that, if they are helped and loved and cared for can enjoy life to the fullness of their capacity. All right? If you fail to grow spiritually here, there is a sense in which in, in eternity you will enjoy heaven to the fullness of your capacity. But if you took your bubbling teenager who plays football and basketball and enjoys art and all of those things, and you took him and compared him to a child who is retarded, even though both of them are enjoying life to the fullest of their capacity, if you had a choice as to which one you would be, which would you choose? Everybody will enjoy heaven to the fullness of their capacity, but some will have a greater capacity. The fact is you can choose. By the measure of your growth now, you will determine the enjoyment and the fullness of your life in eternity. 
Not only that, but I think back to the, the fact that a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago now, it was the second year Gloria and I were married, so it was 24 years ago, she and I made a trip to Southern California to Disneyland. We didn't have much money, and we didn't know that Disneyland isn't open on Monday and Tuesday. We stayed with some friends in another part of Los Angeles on Sunday, through Sunday. We came down on Friday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday we were with them. And then on Monday morning we drove down to Disneyland and uh, to our horror discovered we were just going to go to Disneyland for the day and discovered they're not open in the wintertime on Monday and Tuesday. We had to take a motel for two nights, and that blew us out of the water. That was just about it. We had enough money to get into the gates of Disneyland, and figuring a few dollars to get home. And uh, we, that day, split a hamburger and uh, enjoyed it immensely, uh, because that was all we had all day long to eat. And uh, we... I remember the, the all morning long we had these 15 booked uh, 15 ticket books you know that we were able to do that and we go we get in the gate with with that and then we got these 15 coupons and we went around and we checked out everything there was because we had to make these things stretch see we didn't even ride on anything until about two o'clock in the afternoon we finally had decided how we were going to spend each one and we budgeted them out and very carefully and we used up all the tickets and that was our day at Disneyland now we enjoyed that immensely and anybody can enjoy Disneyland that way even though he doesn't have much money right and nobody would ever say that was a bummer of a deal because it wasn't a bummer of a deal it was a great deal a few years ago we decided we were going to really blow it really splurge and we went down to Disneyland and we ate at the Blue Bayou and we uh went on all the rides we wanted. That was before they had the unlimited coupons, you know. I mean, we did it upright. Whatever we wanted to do, we did, within reason, of course. But we had a full day at Disneyland just doing everything and seeing Disneyland the way Disneyland ought to be seen, right? Now, of the two ways of seeing Disneyland, which would you choose? Well, you said, you know, I... I'd love to see Disneyland anyway, either way, but I would, sure, I'd rather prefer the one where you got unlimited spending money, right? You know, to a great degree, that describes heaven in terms of our spendable currency, okay? Because the treasure you're laying up in heaven is what you're going to spend there. And the treasure is figured not on the basis of how much it is total, but on the basis of how much it is compared to what it could have been. <laughs> now that doesn't mean everybody's going to compare. The marvelous thing about heaven is nobody makes any comparisons. And I'm not going to be standing up there saying, oh boy, that poor guy there, it's sure too bad he didn't grow more when he was... I'm not going to do that. Nobody is. I mean, no room for pride there at all because pride's a sinful attitude. So there won't be that kind of comparison. But I'll guarantee you something. There will be differences in heaven. That's clear. And we're all perfect in Christ. But as to the rewards, as to the crowns, there is a difference. And the thing that will the thing that will be important that this is the thing that's hard for people to grasp the thing that's going to be important when you get to heaven is glorifying Christ. I know that may not turn you on now, but that's what heaven's going to be all about. And some people are going to be able to glorify Him immensely because they have that capacity. Others to a lesser degree, and it all is determined upon how. You live in obedience to him here and now. See, so time is important. But eternity is where the real action is. And so it's better to suffer your whole life, 90 years, and have an eternity of bliss and glory than to live your 90 years trying to lay up treasure on earth and get cheated 
because you wasted so much time here. If you don't think this is true, then just ask yourself, why does God make such an emphasis upon what we do here? Why does he make such an emphasis upon glorifying him now, walking in the Spirit, living with eternity's values in view, focusing our attention upon eternal things? It's obvious. The real treasure is laid up in heaven. That's something that's going to last for eternity. That's going to determine our capacity to glorify him in heaven. Now with that in mind then, come back to earth. Look at verse 26. This has to do with the fundamentals of supply now. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? The forgetfulness of man in verse 25, the fundamentals of supply in verse 26, the futility of effort in verse 27, which of you, by being anxious or by worry, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? You can't. You can't make yourself taller by wishing you were taller. All right? Verse 28 is the flourishing of nature. Look at how God takes care of nature. And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. See, all these things are material things. You're worried about what you're going to wear? Nature flourishes. It never has to worry about how it's going to be dressed. Imagine a flower saying, I have nothing to wear. Verse 29, fulfillment of need. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Solomon with all of his wealth and riches could never approximate the radiant beauty of a flower. Verse 30, you have the function of God, the function of deity, but if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, making very sure you understand that even though God clothes the grass of the field beautifully, it really is just another one of the things it's thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? God's in the business of supplying the needs of people. And then verse 31 talks about the fruitlessness of worry. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? Why? Because of the... Look at the faithfulness of God. Listen, it says, For all these things the Gentiles, the pagan, eagerly seeks. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows what you need. You see, you're not to be like the Gentiles. You're not to be like the world... You're not to be like the people who live for materialism. Listen, friend, if you knew that you're going to spend eternity in hell and the only enjoyment that you're going to get is what you're going to get out of your 90 years, hey, I'll tell you right now, if you knew that to be a certainty, you would be a fool not to get everything out of life that you could. To invest that, those years in pleasure and all of the other things. Don't blame that worldling out there for the way he lives. For goodness sakes, don't emulate him. But don't blame him. That's all he's got. He doesn't have anything else. You have an eternity to look forward to. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven's going to be great, folks. And we got that to look forward to. Sometimes I, I feel like taking some of these guys, you know, that are living for sex and pleasure and all of the rest and just giving them everything I have, let them go. I mean, they're, that, since they're set on having that, if, that's all, if they're determined that that's all they're going to have, they ought to have a shot at having it as best they can. Don't blame them for their nightclubs and their, all of their, their other things because that's all they're going to get. And then it's hell. And believe me, there's no enjoyment of any kind in hell. As I see hell in Scripture, hell is going to be a place where there is, there is the peak of desire for all of eternity with absolutely no fulfillment. None. Man will be at his peak sexually for sexual desire, no fulfillment. He'll at his peak at, be at his peak in wanting things and no fulfillment. He'll be at his peak in wanting water and no water. He'll be at his peak in hunger and no, no food. He'll be no enjoyment at all. And throughout the countless ages of eternity, 
He'll be in that condition. Now you want that, you know, then that's, that's your choice. God help you. But if you are not a believer and you know that that's your destiny, I wouldn't blame you a bit if you walk, you're wasting your time in here. I'll tell you that right now. You ought to be out having fun because you're not going to have any fun any time after you die. But the believer is the guy I can't figure out. Where we've got all of that eternity to look, look for and we've been so influenced and so duped by a world that lives that way. We're living as though we're going to spend eternity in hell and all we're going to get is what we get in this life. Shame on us. The Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. They go for it. And they ought to. But not you. Because you've got an eternity to enjoy life. And it's going to be far more enjoyable than anything we can enjoy here. So that's why it says in verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Here's the attitude towards seeking. Always God first. In terms of material things, what does it say? You're to li- learn to live one day at a time. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has, an- each day has enough trouble of its own. Your concern becomes worry when you focus on the wrong day. And concern about material things make us guilty of polytheism. The Apostle Paul, in speaking of the conversion of the people in Thessalonica, commented on the fact that when they came to Christ, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's what it should ever be. We need to say with Jesus and with Moses, Thou shalt worship the Lord our God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Look at 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just take one more moment here. Beginning of verse 1, it's talking about the privilege of the nation of Israel all of the privilege that they had, guidance and deliverance and unity and food and drink, all that God provided for them. In verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, with them God, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not, notice, should not crave evil things as they also craved. Don't crave what God hasn't provided. Secondly, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Don't make your own gods. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. Don't commit sexual sin. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Don't be guilty of unbelief. That was what, why they were murmuring. Verse 10, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Don't complain. Now these things happened unto them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him that think he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation is taking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape also, that you may also be able to endure it. Therefore, having said all of that, therefore, my beloved, what does it say? Flee from what? Idolatry. Now you see, the amazing thing is that the only time in the wilderness that the people of God, the people of Israel, had idol, the only time was the golden calf. But the idolatry was indelibly imprinted upon their heart from Egypt. And the idolatry was not just the worship of golden calf, but it was, a, it was a, like a cancer in them that caused them to go for things beyond what to go to go for things this direction rather than going to God. And that brought about complaint and worry and unbelief and it caused people to die and it caused all kinds of problems. Why? Because man says man says, I'm gonna go for it on this level, on the earthly level. You delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you 
the desires of your heart. Finally, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now, we don't have time to study this, but I want you to think it through just briefly with me. In chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 8 through 20, there's portrayed for us the living and true God in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. And then in verse 21, after seeing God as he is, John writes this, little children, technia, little born ones, keep, philoso, guard, keep watch, keep yourself from idols. Vincent says that the word idol here means anything that occupies God's rightful place. And my prayer for you is that in this idolatrous world that we be kept from idols. The dearest idol that I have ever known, whatever that idol be, Lord, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. There's a beautiful balance that comes in a text of Scripture like this. Because God is not asking people to go out and make themselves destitute and sit around on a street corner in sackcloth and ashes. But God wants you to get your focus right so that your, your waking thought is of Him and His glory. And as I think I quoted a couple of weeks ago, the words of the chorus written by a dear blind lady up in Seattle who made a career out of encouraging missionaries on the mission field with her typewriter also penned the words to the little chorus, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But the marvel of it is that when we are freed from polytheism and we're focusing only upon him, even though the things of the earth fade as to their value, they're enhanced as to their enjoyment. And by surrendering to God what you have, God then is free to give you back what you need to fulfill the, the now transformed desires of your heart and to give you joy in serving Him. Joy that the world knows nothing about. Nor does the materialistic Christian. Serve him with your whole heart. Give him your whole life. Let him be God. Let him be Lord. And just watch what he can do. The Lord's given us a special three weeks here. We're going to jump on from there to another item that relates very closely. I appreciate so much not only your attention during these days and this very crucial part of this series, but also your response. A number of you have shared with me how God has done some things in your life as a result of the change value system. I wish that we could have each of you, if, it, if the stories weren't so private, it would be marvelous to just have each of you come and just share your testimony of what God has done as you've begun to learn some of these things. I personally appreciate that response. It's a part of my joy, and I just praise the Lord for what He's doing. But let's guard ourselves from idols. What a revolutionary thing it would be in this congregation or in this city, any, any place where people were willing to put away their idols. Whenever the people of Israel put away their idols, there always was revival. And I believe that God could do some things that we would never, we'd never dream of 
could ever happen in a congregation like ours if we would have a maximum number of people determined rather than experiencing the things of life that are so magnetic that they'll focus their attention upon God and learn to love Him with all of their heart and let everything else take separate uh, take second place and not only that but all of the affections of your heart focused on things above not on things in the earth not only would God bless without question materially he always does but he would also give us a touch of his spirit in power and glory that would revolutionize everything that this congregation touched wouldn't it be marvelous if a group of people this size could could turn their back upon a materialistic life and worship only God. Thank you, Father, for just the good time that you've given us these last three weeks, indeed, through this entire series. But Lord, somehow we have sensed your Spirit striving with our hearts very directly. And Lord, we, we believe that you had something in mind for each of us. We're thankful for the response. And we pray, Lord, that each person will evaluate his own life and make certain that there's no idols but that he's worshiping only you. Lord, it is you that we love. We're so indebted to you because of what you did for us on the cross, sending your own son, having him die in our place. We could never pay that debt back, nor would we try because it's a free gift. Lord, we would recognize that we have an opportunity to be what you want us to be if we'll but let you take control. So do that office work in our heart by your Holy Spirit. Clean out the clutter. Get the tinsel off the track. And make us to be the kind of authentic disciple of Jesus Christ that will be able to influence the world in which we live with all of its idolatry. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.